Blog Talk Radio. Hello, it's Janice. I'm Janice. Hi, it's Paul Sexton in London. Hi there. Good afternoon to you, Paul. Hi there. Well, I have been anxious to talk to you for quite a few days here. And so let's... Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, let's just jump right in here. Uh, your brand new book, Charlie's Good Tonight, The Life, The Times, and The Rolling Stones. This is an authorized biography of Charlie Watts, the late great drummer for The Rolling Stones. Um, where, there is so much life and so much book here. So let's just start by saying, of course, unfortunately, Charlie passed away at age 80 last year, last August. And you have been covering the Rolling Stones for how many years now as a journalist? About 30, Janice. Um, I've been getting away with it as a music writer and broadcaster uh, pretty much all my adult life. I started writing for one of the music papers in the UK when I was still at school, when I was 17. Um, uh, so I'm just coming up rather frighteningly on my 45th anniversary of that. Um, and I would say for about, yeah, for the last 30 or so of those, I've been lucky enough to, to be, you know, have been interviewing uh, the Stones uh, very regularly. You don't know that at first, of course, um, but it turned out to be just one of those wonderful recurring things uh, going forward over through the decades. So yes, it's, it's, it's actually more times than I can really put a number on anymore uh, with the whole band uh, and with Charlie in particular. Going back to the first time I met him was in 1991, so it's uh, it's quite a long time. Now I uh, understand that your new book, uh, the forwards have been written by both Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. So were you recruited to, uh, by the band and, and um, Charlie's family to write this book or vice versa? Um, neither is strictly true. Um, the original discussion, the original approach to me, actually, I was very lucky to, you know, that this came uh, to, to, towards me, was from the publishers, HarperCollins, um, on an occasion a couple of years ago where I'd written yet another feature about them for an English, uh, a British newspaper, the Sunday Times. Um, and uh, they got in touch to discuss the idea originally of me working with Charlie on what would have been his autobiography, um, which you know was obviously a very interesting idea. But there, there was something about that that didn't quite ring true to me because knowing him to be as, as modest as he was, you know, really just the most modest man, I think, you could ever meet in, in, in the world of rock and roll. Um, it didn't really strike me as something that would ring true because he would never have taken on a project like that, if you know what I mean. He wouldn't have wanted to be uh, putting himself front and center um, in an autobiography. So it gradually turned into the idea of a biography. Um, you know, obviously we had COVID came along and uh, that presented its own challenges. And then, it, you know, without it being any kind of a criticism, it, uh, the world of the Stones moves quite slowly. So, you know, getting a, getting an idea um, over the line can take quite a long time. And um, we eventually landed on the idea of the biography because sadly he, he, he got ill and um, passed away uh, in the summer of last year. But um, we were, you know, we kind of knew what we wanted to do before that point. And then the actual writing of the book kind of came um, in quite a hurry, actually, you know, to, uh, after that point. So um, that's, that's really the, the story of how it happened. Now, he was often described as the, the, the silent band member. So, you know, being silent and being a Rolling Stone member is just, kind of shouldn't be used in the same sentence. <laughs> so how in the world did this happen with him being a band member for, what, about 60 years almost? 
Yeah, nearly. That's right. Yeah, so from when he joined, he joined in the beginning of '63. The Stones have been going, uh, you know, famously their first gig was in the summer of '62, uh, July '62, um, and pretty soon after that, they were they were after him. You know, they were they were headhunting him. So, uh, and with certain reluctance on his part. Um, about the idea of joining what he thought would be, you know, a gig that might last a month or two, because that's the way everyone thought about, you know, rock and roll uh, in those days. Nobody thought of it as a, as a job with any kind of permanence. And he was a very talented graphic designer, of course, so he was making quite good money in, in, in that uh, line of work. Um, but yes, once they got him, um, there he was, you know, as the absolute rock in, in this band, and uh, certainly the quiet one, but then so was Bill Wyman, uh, the bass player, so they kind of bonded over that, the fact that they had no interest really in the usual, well, most of the usual trappings of, uh, of, of rock and roll, um, and just kind of, um, you know, w remained as, as uh, un uh, unaffected by it, really, as... as as you could possibly be, given the amazing, um, you know, world that was opening up in front of them. But uh, they did really, both Bill and Charlie did kind of look at that with a great degree of amusement. And um, that never left Charlie, you know, he, <laughs> there's a point. Um, I remember that Bill said in his own uh, autobiography, he said that the Rolling Stones almost passed Charlie by. <laughs> you know, it was one of those things that it was not his first choice. You know, he, if he'd had his um, life again, he would have wanted to be... Um, you know, if he could have teleported himself into a different time and space, he would have chosen to be probably an a, a, a African-American jazz drummer in one of the New York clubs of the 1930s, I think. Um, so he was a very unlikely candidate to be, to be in a rock and roll band, you're right. Very much so. So I understand that he really was not a big fan of um, of rock music, so you just mentioned that his, he loved jazz, so... Uh, did yep. he ever record any, or was drummer on any jazz um, records or songs or anything? Yes, he did. Um, <clears throat> and it's interesting, actually, how that, how that played out, because as a, as a young man, you know, probably even before he was in his teens, he and his next-door neighbor, who became his lifelong friend, Dave Green, um, who played with him on some of the, you know, many of his jazz projects in the later years, a wonderful double bass player who's still still out there playing live. I went to see him play the other night at a club in London, actually. Um, and they grew up together with this shared passion for jazz. Um, you know, they they sit in each other's bedrooms playing the, the records, and then when they're a little older, going to gigs in in London and so on, and just fantasizing about the whole, particularly the American jazz scene, looking at the record covers. Um, Charlie would dress like some of his his idols, you know, and if, if Miles Davis wore a green shirt on a record sleeve, then Charlie had to have a green shirt, you know, that's, that's how that works. So he was absolutely obsessed with the whole look as well as the sound of jazz. Um, but then once he gets into the Stones, you know, you, clearly they're on this absolute carousel of, of mania uh, that develops very quickly, and there really wasn't any time in their schedule for him to do anything other than the Stones records for, for a very long time. So the first point where he actually makes a record, a jazz album, in his own name, is not until the mid-80s, you know, when the band had been going nearly 25 years already at that point. Um, but from that point on, there are a lot, you know, and I would recommend them to anybody, actually. They're beautifully tasteful records with wonderful, um, you know, carefully selected uh, hand-picked band members uh, in various uh, formats, you know, quartets, quintets, uh, Ten sets in some cases, and one or two other cases, even you know, big band formats. Um, but yeah, there's a you you could make a case for a you know a, a very fascinating catalogue of Charlie's records just in the jazz world. That is so fascinating. Uh, being a longtime member of 
the greatest rock and roll band in history, but yet, yeah. uh, that is so interesting. So, um, you also write that, that he preferred dogs to humans. Tell, tell us about that. <laughs> one of those throwaway comments that uh, I found uh, in, in addition to all of the new interviews that I did for the book and my pretty vast archive of my own interviews with them from the last 30 years or so as I say um, I did also do a lot of research into you know other interviews that they would have done for music papers and so on and that's just one of those throwaway things he said at one point I prefer dogs to humans <laughs> um, but you know he was so completely unaffected you, you I can't stress this enough for how ordinary he was you know and you look at some of the footage of it's the same as bill actually you're, you're looking at them playing with mayhem going all around them and they're just completely straight-faced and charlie said another of his quotes from that period that i always loved was he said i'm not i'm not actually boring i've just got a boring face which <laughs> 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 great um you know he somehow i have no idea how this is possible you know he managed to uh, navigate this complete chaos that was going on all around him. Um, there's one or two specific examples of that. I make quite a lot of references to a film, fascinating documentary of the Stones called Charlie is My Darling, which was captured in a very sort of similar style to the Beatles' Hard Day's Night film. You know, that kind of um, uh, moving camera kind of effect, you know, just, just really following them on the road. And at one point at one of the shows in Ireland, there is a riot. You know, and the, the, the crowd get on the stage and it's, you know, the gig comes to a very swift conclusion. But Charlie is at the back there playing, continues to keep the beat until it's absolutely not safe for him to be there any longer. You know, he's just such a rock, um, physically and psychologically at the back of that band for all those decades. And you also note that, uh, you know, of course the Stones have toured the world several times over in their long, illustrious career, but yet, Charlie loved, you know, he had thoughts of being at home. He wanted to be home, but also that that he didn't, did he ever miss a gig, ever? This is very interesting. The, the common perception is that he didn't. And when he died, uh, I mean, you could probably imagine because of my, my sort of uh, association with the band, I, I got an awful lot of calls to, you know, to, to speak about him and to write uh, things for newspapers and so on. And the thing you saw more than anything else was the fact that he never missed a gig. Actually, the truth is he did miss one once, one. quite early on in 1964, because he got the date wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he owned up to it and refer to it later, um, so it's not quite true that he, he didn't miss any. I mean, you know, one out of 57 years is not that that's, going. That's a good record. Oh, my stars. Yeah. So, so the, the man who really didn't like touring, yeah. yet he only missed one gig in nearly 60 years. That is quite, a, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's right. But you're right. You know, yearned to be home. Uh -huh. I love playing. Um, you know, the bit on stage, fantastic. Everything else around it, traveling. Mm -hmm. Interviews, um, you know, that he just not were not for him. You know, he would yearn to be home, and if if his wife Shirley would come out on the tour, his face would light up, and he'd be so much happier. And then later years, his daughter Serafina, and then even later years, his granddaughter Charlotte not only came on the tour but actually worked for him. Um, strictly speaking, with his with his assistant, you know, on some of the, the tours in the in the 2010s, um, and. That was fantastic for him because it was a little piece of home on the road, yeah. you know, so kind of gave him that connection. But yeah, he would uh, he would be um, yearning to be home. And one of the things that you, you know, I hope people will enjoy 
reading about in the book is just exactly how domesticated he was. You know, he <laughs> not only was he, um, you know, did he enjoy home life, you know, he loved doing the washing up and uh, <laughs> cleaning up the dog's mess and that kind of thing, you know. Oh, so very, um, very domesticated man. That is incredible, you know, uh, a rock star, a band member cleaning up the poop and such. <laughs> You'd be on it before anybody else, you know, because he had certain OCD kind of tendencies. He would just be obsessively tidy about everything. You know, he would, uh, Christmas, you know, they'd be, they'd, everybody would be gathered around opening presents, and, you know, he'd be, almost before the wrapping paper would hit the floor, he'd be there tidying that up. <laughs> um, she, uh, Charlotte, his granddaughter, said to me that, you know, you'd, she remembers going on a country walk within near the house one time, and then he's walking up a country lane, and he's dawdling behind her, and she looks behind to see why he's why he's you know not keeping up, and he's he's kind of tidying up the, the hedge and you know putting little twigs back in place and so on. <laughs> <Something> <laughs> very obsessive behaviour. Well, out of all the the years that you've covered the band, talked to the band members, uh, you know, of course, going back to Charlie, did did you ever hear him say? Uh, did he have any favorite, personal favorite um, Rolling Stone albums and Rolling Stone singles that he just personally liked, or did, did he ever say? No, well, this is another very interesting thing about him. He he genuinely never listened to their records. No. You know, he said this so many times to me. He he said occasionally I'll hear one at a party, <laughs> um, but he would never choose to listen to them unless he absolutely had to. And I was party to this in. In later years, you know, you, sometimes he would be obliged to approve something, you know, with a, a reissue or a new image of the packaging or, um, or, you know, the, the, a new mix of, a, of an old record or something. And then he, he would grudgingly listen to them. But no, he, he really didn't. His wife Shirley did. I mean, she was a genuine Rolling Stones fan, you know, she would play the, play the record. He was a huge music fan and not just a jazz, you know, he loved Motown, um, and, uh, you know, a lot of other, uh, contemporary things. He, he was famously at the first London gig by the Four Tops when they, when they hit town in, uh, in 66 or so, I think it was. Um, so there was that side of it, but uh, no, he, he really didn't pay much attention to the, you know, he didn't buy into the legend of the Stones in that way at all. That's, that's uh, you know, it really emphasizes what an ordinary guy he was. Not swayed by fame in the slightest, and um, Another favourite quote of mine that he told me once. I think we would, we we did several interviews in in Toronto, which for a long time was their favourite town, favourite city to um, to rehearse in before a tour. And I was lucky enough to go out and do, you know, see them out there in rehearsals. I think three three times in a row actually. Um, and we got into a conversation about that, and he said something to the effect of, uh, "When I'm rehearsing with the Stones." Is the only time I know their catalog. Apart from that, I've forgotten it. Oh no! <laughs> Goodness. Oh. So yes, it's, uh, none of that usual kind of self-reverential attitude that you get from most rock stars. Uh, I mean, it's like it's like maybe you know working at the Mercedes-Benz Corporation and driving a Ford or a Chevy. <laughs> Or something. Yeah, I suppose so. Although, actually, since you made the car analogy, of course, it does bring me on to the fact that he had this incredible collection of vintage cars, which he couldn't drive. You oh. know, a lot of people know that fact. That yeah. He never learned to drive, never had to, you know, there was never a point no. where, where he needed to. Um, 
So he would just, you know, at the various large houses that they had, this massive car collection, he would just go put on one of his best suits and just go and sit in the car because he loved the whole vibe of it. You know, he loved the feel of of the luxury and so on. So, you know, he was a he, he was a, a man of, as I say, I mean, you know, a man of wealth and taste, to quote mm-hmm. Stan Burke. Um, certainly not afraid of spending money on himself or on other people. And um, uh, it, it just... Very, very unusual. I don't, I don't blame him. I would, if I could afford antique classic cars, I'd have a whole lot for them, of them myself. I love those. Oh my goodness, the '57 yeah. Chevy. I'm. Oh, that's another oh, story. Yeah, and his favorite, the real jewel in the crown was the '37 Bugatti that he had, which was oh. like, you know, I mean, I can't imagine why much that cost him. But you know, he, as I say, he would spend a lot of money on that and on his suits and on all kinds of other collections, you know, first uh-huh. edition books, silverware, um, uh, all kinds of memor- music memorabilia, you know, pro- programs and and playbills and that kind of stuff. But then he was also unbelievably generous with his friends, you know, the, oh, wow. the gifts that he... In fact, I, I, I devoted a chapter to it in the book um, because he it was just a recurring uh, feature of, of the interviews, you know, people saying... Talking about with amazing gifts that he he would give them, whether it was you know Mick or Keith or Ronnie or any of his other um, friends over the years. And finally, I understand that uh, family members uh, have uh, also given you information for this book. So, who are some of the family members that are quoted in your book? Well, this is, was the thrill, and I should have mentioned before that when we were discussing the possibility of it, the um, the great uh, you know. Um, thrill for me was getting the the approval for the book from Charlie's daughter Serafina and his granddaughter Charlotte and um, you know that's how we we're able to call it the authorized biography through their good, good graces you know and then for, for, for people who are very very private and have really rarely spoken about him in, in public um, to be able to talk to them for the book was obviously a great treat and also Charlie's sister Linda who is so low profile that most people don't even realize he had a sister mm. um, and she, the remarkable thing with uh, with Linda was that she had never granted an interview about him ever um, so this was the first time and she's three years younger than Charlie so like 70s now, I guess, and she's, uh, you know, that was a, such a compliment to, to me that she would, um, uh, you know, speak to me for the, for the book. So they're all in there, and then, um, you know, various people that he was very close to, obviously Bill Wyman uh, is in there, and, uh, you know, lots of band members, past and present. Um, uh, Glenn Johns, who was a crucial part of the Stones, set up for very many years as their studio uh, right-hand man and engineer. Um, Chris Kinsey, who was a producer later on of the Steel Wheels album and others. Um, and, you know, just a, a, a cast of people who were around him, and not just in music, but I spoke to Charlie's tailor and his shoemaker <laughs> for the book, um, because, you know, the style was such an important part of his makeup. So um, it's quite a cast. Oh, yeah. What a. I mean, the fact that you had this, this large cast of family and close friends that were so close to him, and they entrusted you and authorized and sanctioned you to write the book. I mean, what a career that you've had, Paul. I mean, getting paid all these decades to cover the stones. Oh, I 